pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I think of a good neighbor, I think of a man named Mr. Joe. Mr. Joe was a man who lived in the apartment next door to my first childhood home. And every fair weather evening while I was outside riding my tricycle in furious circles around the driveway, Mr. Joe would come out into the backyard, he would roll out his grill, he would prop open two lawn chairs, he would park himself in one of them with his beer always in his hand, and he made himself some dinner. Inevitably, I often found my way into his second seat. Sometimes Mr. Joe would ask me which part of my day, which color, or which Disney princess was my favorite, and other times he would talk, usually about things that made very little sense to a five-year-old, but our conversations always made me feel like we were old friends. Now, I often wondered why Mr. Joe would always prop open two chairs while he cooked dinner. Because very often, I was the only one that ever sat in the second one. Some nights, when I wasn't allowed outside to play, I would watch him from my bedroom window, and it was very rare when other neighbors or friends would drop by. Many evenings, his second chair remained empty. And so one day, I worked up the courage to ask him, Mr. Joe, why do you always bring out a second seat? And after a moment, he looked at me and he simply responded, well, Katie, because that's what most of my friends growing up called me, Katie, well, Katie, you just never know when someone might sit in it. Years later, as I've reflected on this sentiment, I realized that in some ways, this truly captures the essence of who I experienced Mr. Joe to be a man who always held an open posture and an open seat to the world around him. But it wasn't until years later when I also learned that the world didn't always return the favor to Mr. Joe. See, because Mr. Joe lived alone in his apartment his whole adult life, he worked as a dishwasher in the same little restaurant his whole adult life. He walked with a noticeable limp for miles back and forth to work because he didn't own a car his whole adult life. And often, when it got a little late and I was in bed, he would get a little noisy because he had had one too many beers. As a child, practically all of this escaped my attention. I knew Mr. Joe as my neighbor and my friend. But as I grew older, I learned that the world had a lot of names for Mr. Joe, too, and neighbor and friend just weren't among them. For reasons I'm sure are as at least as complex as Mr. Joe seemed to be, most people found it difficult to be a good neighbor to him, and perhaps he wasn't as neighborly to everyone as he was to me. Now, in my experience, good neighbors, they're hard to find, and they're even harder to become. Not only because the definition of the word seems to have evolved over time, the way that the makeups of our neighborhoods and our families and our societies and cultural expectations have changed, but also because there are a lot of things that we let get in the way. There are differences of opinion, 
or preconceived judgments that allow us to separate ourselves from other people. From very early ages, we are taught to be afraid of or shun people who are not like us. We learn to assume the worst about people whose lives aren't as fortunate as ours. We put up boundaries between us and them. In a culture that encourages us to be fiercely independent, it's difficult to confess our loneliness, even our need for each other, because that kind of honesty feels too vulnerable. It's too embarrassing. And very often I find that it's difficult to step outside of my own agenda or the busyness of my own life long enough to even get a handle on my own needs, let alone learn the needs of others. I thought about the difficulty in defining and living out what it means to be a good neighbor this week as I read our scripture passage. Because, you know, biblical scholars and theologians have long been perplexed if not disturbed by the way Jesus treated the Seraphonician woman when she comes looking for his help. Jesus had just left the region of Galilee where he was doing miracles and teachings and word was spreading about rapidly about him. And he crosses the political boundaries out of Galilee and into Gentile territory. He goes to the region of Tyre. We're not exactly sure why he goes there, but the text makes it sound as though he was perhaps looking for some rest from all the crowds that had been following him. But he's not successful in doing this because word has apparently spread further than he thought. And the Seraphonician woman comes to him and begs for his help. And instead of doing so, as we so often know to be the case with Jesus, Jesus basically tells her that dogs have to wait their turn. Compared to so many of the other stories that we know and love about Jesus, this is a hard one. Jesus doesn't appear to be very neighborly to this woman. And as you can imagine, people have come up with all sorts of reasons and explanations for why this could be. Some thought that maybe the phrase in its original language didn't sound quite as bad as in our English translation, though it's perhaps still a little uncharacteristic of Jesus. Some claim that we've caught a tired and grumpy human Jesus with his proverbial pants down, or that it is a cruel little test of the woman's perseverance. Many certainly have raised the good point that the woman's ethnicity was a mark against her because Jews and Gentiles, they didn't get along. And women, regardless of their ethnic status, were often treated as lower class. And it has also been pointed out that while Jesus may have gone to the region of Tyre to rest, He may have also gone because there were Jews there living in economic poverty under Gentile rule, and this Gentile woman was not meant to be the primary recipient of Jesus' liberating mission. But regardless of the explanation, the reality present in this passage seems to be that Jesus, at least initially, assumes that his mission is not meant for her. That for one reason or another, there were too many things getting in the way, too many people to consider, too many differences between them for him to consider choosing her as his neighbor. But when the woman responds to Jesus, when she challenges him, all of a sudden something changes for Jesus. He responds to her. He decides to transgress whatever boundaries there might have been between them, and he heals the woman's daughter. He changes his mind. 
And then, instead of returning to Galilee, where he had come from, he takes a roundabout route through another region called Decapolis, even further outside of the political boundaries of his people, and he heals a deaf man. And in these two healing stories, we see something incredible happening. We see that the mission of Jesus is becoming wider and wider all of the time. Jesus is challenged to move beyond the boundaries of the people he thinks are his responsibility, beyond ethnicity and gender and status, beyond religious and political differences, beyond the scope of his mission, beyond his neighborhood. And he goes. In this passage, Jesus, and therefore we become to recognize that there is an ever-widening, infinite compassion and mercy of God that knows no external boundaries and seems to transgress all the ones that we attempt as human beings to install. It's an ever-widening love that sees the world and its creatures as neighbors. And this love calls us to learn to become neighbors ourselves, people who traverse the boundaries of our own comforts and the things we know to draw near to one another. An infinite compassion and mercy and kindness That is the model Jesus shows us in this passage. Now, if there is one person who has taught us anything about what it means to be a good neighbor besides Jesus, it is Mr. Rogers, right? Mr. Rogers, who is here with us this morning in some form or another. Fred Rogers is a bit of a hot item right now in our public discourse. Many of us either grew up with him or our children grew up with him watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Some of us have seen the movie that he's in, Won't You Be My Neighbor? But for those of you who haven't or who don't know Mr. Rogers very well, he was kind of revolutionary. He was a minister, he was a puppeteer, he was a writer and producer of a television show that traversed all kinds of boundaries, cultural norms and expectations because he believed that it was important to become a neighbor to children who are often forgot, forgotten, and to teach them what it means to be good neighbors to other people. He pushed the boundaries of entertainment, of parenting, of adolescent psychology, as he tackled hard issues on a show like racism and the assassination of JFK and divorce, despite all the public ridicule, because he believed that children just like adults should be taken seriously and that they need help making sense of the world around them so that they could grow into loving and whole adults who knew how to be good neighbors. Now, if you've seen the movie, then you know that toward the end of the movie in this clip, Mr. Rogers is asked a question. What does the question, won't you be my neighbor, mean? And after a moment, Mr. Rogers looked into the camera and he said, well, I suppose it's an invitation for someone to be close to you. I think that everyone deserves to be loved and and longs to know that they are lovable, and so consequently, the greatest thing we can do to help someone know that they are loved, to help someone know that they are loved and capable of loving. Mr. Rogers knew that neighbors move beyond the boundaries that we often put up between us and the world. And he knew that neighbors help others know that they are loved and valued by God. 
My own neighbor, Mr. Joe, taught me that a neighbor holds a seat open and a generous hand open to the world around them even when it isn't returned because you just never know when someone will take you up on it or how badly they might need it or when they might return the favor. And just as we did with the kids this morning, I bet that each of you can think of a person in your life who has been a good neighbor to you. I would invite you to think about who that person might be. Someone who's made a difference in your life and in who you became. Someone who went out of their way to know that you were loved and capable of loving someone else. Who is that person? What did they do for you? How did they change your life? What are you most thankful for about that person? As we reflect on this question, I'd like to invite Taylor to come forward, and she's going to play a song for us. And as she does, I would invite you to think about that person and also think about what it is you need to do to be a good or maybe better neighbor to the people around you. And then, just like the kids, we are going to invite you to come forward and to write the name of your neighbor on this neighbor sign, and also one thing that you are going to do to be a good neighbor to someone else. And you can come up, if we could get the ushers actually to come forward and dismiss people by rows, that might actually be the most helpful. So at this time, if the ushers could come forward and if Taylor could play. Who is your neighbor? And how will you be a good neighbor to someone else? You may come forward. <laughs> 